Well, good evening, everybody. Instinctive and intuitive to say, lovely to see you. But of course, I can't see you, but I'm trusting that you're there. And uh, welcome back to Marked Out for Fruitfulness, session three. And um, we're going to pick up the story in Mark chapter one, verse 16. So if you're following in your Bibles, you might like to get that out. Mark chapter one, verse 16. And we're going to take it in small chunks this evening. And I want to uh, issue a kind of invitation, a challenge, really. As, as I read these verses, which are probably very familiar to you, the challenge I found in preparing this is to try and imagine that we're actually there when the action's taking place. And that being in the shoes of the very soon-to-be disciples we know really absolutely nothing about Jesus. We've never met him before. We, we've never seen him. And of course, it's really difficult for us all these years later, because we know that his name is the most famous name in all the world. Uh, we know that he's had millions and millions of followers right across the globe. We know that people are still talking about him and reading his words, etc. But they knew precisely nothing about him at this point. So let's be imagining that as I read Mark chapter one, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hard men, and they followed him. Well, I was searching for a heading for the passages we're going to look at tonight, and I've got two headings for us, two titles. We could either call it a fistful of first encounters, or we could call it a chapter of incidents. It, it's been said you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And tonight we're really looking at many first impressions. And we begin with the four fishermen at the side of Lake Galilee. And whatever else is going on, we notice, don't we, that Jesus has staggering authority. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people, or you'll become fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Why? What did they see in him? What enabled them to trust? To give up what I expect was a good career, or their day job, or probably more accurately, their night job. I think what it must have been is something vested in the person of Jesus himself that made people want to say yes. And whatever it is, they see it in him and they leave their nets and they follow. Not just Simon and Andrew, but James and John. They too leave and follow. And actually just notice in passing, because we're told they leave their hard men, that implies they ran really quite a little fishing business. 
it raises a question in my mind that I think is quite interesting. How much do you need to know in order to follow Jesus? How much do you need to know in order to follow Jesus? And the answer I propose for us is enough. You just need to know enough. And that slightly cryptic answer and evasive answer, but it's accurate. I don't think these people knew much at all, do you, at this point? They had nothing to go on. They hadn't seen a miracle. They hadn't heard him speak. They hadn't read his CV. They weren't impressed by his fleet of camels because he didn't have one or the cut of his kaftan, presumably. He just said, follow, and they did. And I mentioned this because we can occasionally assume, I think, that we can reason people into the kingdom, that we can persuade them. Now, there is a place for reasoning and there is a place for persuasion, but there's also a place and there's a reality in the presence of Jesus. Presence evangelism, if you like. Thinking about it, I think often people don't know why they chose or choose to follow Jesus in the sense that they couldn't explain it to you. They couldn't set it out on paper as a, as a logical argument. Initially, for some people, it is just simply an encounter that does the business. And stepping back from that perspective, we could argue, could we not, that more important than what did they see in Jesus is the question, what did Jesus see in them? I don't know. But he did see something in them because he calls them to follow him. And there, there we have it. That's four disciples picked and seven to go. Now let's switch to the next section and read from verse 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed, they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Well, here we have it. Jesus walks into the synagogue in Capernaum. And if it was an average Sabbath day, that's to say if it was an av average Saturday, and if it was an average congregation, and one thinks that it was really from what's written about them, they got to that point in the service when they went into sleep mode as the rabbi opens the scroll. Ah, they'd be saying to themselves, this is the time when we zone out for a bit. And I have to say, I, I recognize a bit of what they were feeling. Uh, for five years of my life when I was at school, I was a music scholar and I sat through more than my fair share of services every day of the week, I think possibly except for Saturday, 
was compulsory chapel. And I listened to a lot of sermons, or rather I didn't really listen to them, because the more I listened to, the more it seemed to be like listening to drivel. And actually, it rather set me back. I, I assumed that as most of the speakers were boring, Jesus himself must be enormously boring. There were, as far as I can recall, just two sermons, two preachers I can remember from five years worth of preaching. And one of these preachers, actually, I heard many times later in my life at St. Michael's, and that was a man called David Watson. And in so many ways, humanly speaking, he was very, very ordinary. He had no great physical presence, no great personality. He wasn't an extrovert in any way. He's pretty quiet. But I remember hearing him preach at St. Michael's, and it was always, it seemed to me, it was always as if he grew in stature with every stride towards the pulpit. Now, it was said once of William Wilberforce, who we mostly remember because of his huge work towards the abolition of slavery. It was said once of him by James Boswell, who heard him speak in the House of Commons. He said, I saw what seemed a mere shrimp mount upon the table. But as I listened, he grew and grew until the shrimp became a whale. And I mentioned this because I think Jesus, he must have looked very ordinary indeed. But evidently his teaching was packed with unmistakable authority. And spiritual authority comes from being close to God. And it also comes with an anointing of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't align itself necessarily with religious training or PhDs or degrees and intelligence. I reckon the teachers of the law in those days had plenty of religious training and the equivalent of degrees and lots of intelligence. But they weren't living close to God and they weren't teaching under the anointing of the Lord, so it would seem. And incidentally, if you want to follow this point up after this talk sometime, do a Google search and just put into the search engine Lloyd-Jones documentary on George Whitfield. And that will take you to a link about Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's just a 15 minute uh, talk he gives about George Whitfield. And make sure you watch it all the way to the end, because right at the end, he talks about where did Whitfield's authority come from? Well, anyhow, moving on from the fact that he, Jesus, we're told, taught with lots of authority. We're also told in this passage about his authority over the powers of darkness, aren't we? The spiritual forces. A man who had an unclean spirit cried out, what do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus, as you know, rebukes him or rebukes the spirit and the spirit leaves. When the king comes into his house to claim his kingdom, it's not gonna be business as usual. Not if the business was just treading water. And again, using our imagination, just think what happened when that congregation went home. You know, I imagine them turning and saying to each other, did you see that? Old Tom, son of Benjamin. You know Tom the elder who always sits in the third row from the back. He got taken to the cleaners, literally. What a noise. And the people noted, the people clocked it, that 
Jesus not only teaches with authority, he has authority over unclean spirits. And in verse 28, Mark writes the equivalent of the gossip machine got to work all over Galilee. And the next stop is at Simon's, Simon Peter's mother-in-law and also before a crowd. Let's read verse 29 to 34. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. And the fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Well, it's interesting just in passing to note that Simon has a mother-in-law, so that means that he was married. And uh, we watch what happens and he heals her. And then a crowd gathers and there's a sort of healing revival, isn't there? And in verse 32, Jesus healed many who had various diseases and he also drove out many demons. But he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Well, a question that's intrigued people down the ages is why wouldn't Jesus let the demons speak? Especially the rather curious add-on phrase, because they knew who he was. And it is, it is enigmatic. But frankly, many people are puzzled, uh, not only by the fact that Jesus wouldn't let the demons speak, many are puzzled by the appearance of demons at all. The fact is, though, that reading through these Gospels, we can't help noticing that an awful lot of Jesus' time is spent tackling forces of evil. The devil, who was referenced last week in these studies with the temptations and demons, uh, pop up time and time again. C.S. Lewis uh, writes with his customary clarity on two stances that we do well to avoid when thinking about demons and devils and spirits. And this is what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. Well, we don't want to jump into either of those two extremes, but it does seem to me that when the Holy Spirit captivates us and brings us alive, we suddenly get much, much more aware that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. And our whole perspective begins to change. A theologian called George Ladd comments like this about Jesus's encounters with the forces of darkness. Mankind is in bondage to a personal power much stronger than himself. At the very heart of Jesus's mission, is a need of rescuing people from bondage to the satanic kingdom and bringing them into the sphere of God's kingdom. Anything less than this involves an essential reinterpretation of the basic facts of the gospel. And as we go through, Mark, we will talk more and uh, discover more about this spiritual battle. But I can think of a couple of reasons 
why Jesus wouldn't allow the demons to speak in verse 10. And the first of these two reasons is very simple. Would you trust demons to be your publicity agents? Obviously you wouldn't. We know that when the devil lies, he's speaking his own native language. So they would distort, twist, contaminate the good news much better that they should be silent. And then secondly, as we journey through Mark's gospel, we'll see that our picture of Jesus takes time to take shape and it changes. And really in these very early chapters, we don't know much about him at all any more than the disciples did. It will take us quite a long time and it took the disciples quite a long time who were with him day and night before they're able to say with any conviction, you are the Christ, the son of God. Mark has told us in the very first opening line of his gospel who Jesus is, but it won't be until chapter eight that the disciples reach that conclusion. And even when they do, they have a very confused notion of the kind of Messiah that Jesus will turn out to be. We know, looking back, it took a full three years of public ministry for Jesus to train the disciples to get to a place of understanding so that when he died and rose from the dead, they were sort of semi-competent. By muzzling the demons here at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is able to keep a grip on the pace of what's going on, to some extent at least. The king will claim back his kingdom, but he'll do it in the way of his choice and at the pace of his choice and with the people of his choice. And the disciples are beginning to discover they're in for quite a ride. That's it. And really tonight, I've just got one question that I think um, we could discuss in our, our little group time. I, I put the second question in as a reserve, but I'm really expecting the first one will, will do us. And it's this, of all the incidents recorded so far in chapter one, which would you most like to have been present at and why? And with that, I'll leave you.